Welcome to Healthy Body, Healthy Mind. This is a podcast series from the Faculty of Health at UTS, otherwise known as the University of Technology, Sydney, in Australia. In this series, we'll be looking at some of the groundbreaking work being conducted by health researchers at UTS. I'm your podcast host, William Verity. This episode, we're looking at some strange bedfellows. What happens when health and economics cross paths? Who decides how to spend our limited resources when it comes to treating disease and saving lives? And what's it like to be told that you'll never have sex again? I have a story I always like to tell, particularly students of health economics, of something that happened to me. This was back when I worked in the pharmaceutical industry. I was on a plane coming back to Sydney and I was working away on a document and I had an elderly couple next to me and the entire flight they kept looking over at me and whispering and I'm thinking, oh no, they work for competitors, you know, they're looking at what I'm doing and they're competitor agents. end of the flight, the wife turned to the husband and said, go on, go on, speak to him. He finally turned to me and he said, excuse me, but are you working on that drug for chronic myeloid leukaemia? I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, did you work on it when it was funded? And I said, y- yes, I did. Can I ask why? And he said, well, our son had chronic myeloid leukaemia and he was given very little time to live and then he went on that drug and it saved his life. And at that point, his wife and he both started to cry and I kind of welled up and I got this big lump in my throat and I was a bit lost for words. But it really just brought home to me, this is why I do what I do. I can help affect people's lives and I can make a difference to people who I don't even know. That gives me satisfaction. So yes, I love what I do. Associate Professor Richard Diabru Lorenzo. I'm a health economist. So I started life as a financial economist in the Reserve Bank 30 years ago now. I really wanted to do something that was more connected to people and had a more direct impact on people's lives and our day-to-day living and that's what drew me to health and health economics because that was a really great intersection between my love of understanding how we make better use of scarce resources and that's what economics is all about but also my love of health and medical science have impact in what I'm doing and I don't mean that in any kind of egotistical way I can sit back at night and I can see a story on the news and I can think wow I worked on that I helped in some way it might have been infinitesimally small but I had some role in playing in getting that particular medication or that particular device made accessible to patients
predominantly what I do is to look at how we use our healthcare resources, our dollars, and see whether or not we can use them in a better way to provide healthcare, get people access to the drugs, the medical services, and the technologies that they need to make them better. I'm also more than happy to sit and be immersed in numbers and play with those numbers and be able to produce a journal article at the end of it that then communicates to people, actually, this is what we've been able to demonstrate. This is the value of this particular product and this is how we can help patients in the end to live better. I'm a data nerd, so a good day for me is where I get to work with some form of data collection or data analysis. That might be working with patients or working with clinicians to understand what's happening to them in terms of accessing healthcare or the delivery of healthcare. I get a real buzz out of that. I enjoy speaking to people. I enjoy understanding what's happening to them and what matters to them. So that kind of primary data collection and getting to the nub of what's happening is a great day for me. At our centre, and that's the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation here at UTS as part of the Faculty of Health, we work very closely with the Department of Health through much of the work we do. We have a very large program of work that works with government on actually evaluating applications that the government receives for the funding of healthcare. There are certainly health economists within the department, but they are so busy that they just can't take on the extra amount of work that's involved to do this. So they have expert bodies like ours outside of government to assist them in providing the advice that they need. We're involved in a trial at the moment which is using a particular diagnostic measure, something called PSMA-PET, and what it's doing is trying to use that earlier in the diagnosis of prostate cancer so that we can reduce the number of men who have to have biopsies of the prostate to rule out actually having prostate cancer. And I know that that would be a boon for many men who undergo unnecessary biopsies, as happens at the moment. Louise Emmett is absolutely inspiring. She's doing a lot of cutting-edge work, particularly around diagnostics and scanning, and a new area of research in cancer called theranostics. And this is a new way of using radioisotopes and particular ligands to look at the body and understand what's happening at a lower level than we can with other diagnostic techniques. The project I'm working on with Louise is an important project auspiced by ANZUP, the trial group, and the name of the project is Primary 2. Louise Emmett is absolutely inspiring. To watch her come to a problem formulate a solution and then work you through how you're going to get to the end of whatever it might be is amazing. She is truly, truly inspiring to watch and fantastic to work with. I'm Louise Emmett. I'm a doctor. I run the Theranostics and Nuclear Medicine Department at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney and I'm a professor at University of New South Wales. Richard's got a very good handle on health economics and if I am going to persuade a government to help me fund things so that we can improve the quality of lives of men with prostate cancer, we need great health economics. We can't just say, oh, this is fantastic, look what it does, look at this image, you know, you've got to fund this. We have to prove it is, is cost effective. When we go to these government organisations, we've got to go there with health economics behind us to prove that what we're doing is valuable to patients. 
actually think it's critical to getting care to vulnerable patients includes health economics, must include health economics. And if we're not doing trials that involve health economics, we're idiots. Because when you introduce very expensive new technologies, you actually have to know that they're cost effective and you have to know that they benefit the patients, that their patients' outcomes actually improve. And to do that well, you need to embed health economics into trials. For a researcher and as a doctor, it's just the most fantastic thing to be involved in. I just think it's fun. It's a really fun thing to be doing. Richard and I probably have met almost exclusively on Zoom. So we meet in trial meetings, we discuss protocols together, we send a lot of emails. For me, Richard's a great collaborator. He's extremely effective, friendly, proactive, but I don't know him well personally. And how long have you been working with him? Gee, it must be about five years. And I've never been to UTS. And I wouldn't know where Cher is. We're just busy, right? I actually have a clinical full-time job. The research is done in the spare time. The first trial that we were involved in was the primary trial, which is about the diagnosis of prostate cancer. And then we're doing the randomised trial, which is randomised between whether or not a patient gets this new PET technology to help diagnose prostate cancer versus getting standard of care. Then we're both involved in a trial called DIPA, which is about de-intensification of treatment in men who have biochemical recurrence following radical prostatectomy. Then we're doing the NCP trial. So NCP is the randomised trial of treatment using standard of care versus treatment using the brand spanking new thing that we're doing. We were both also involved in therapy. So therapy is a trial comparing chemotherapy to this new treatment that we've been doing. It was a randomised trial. I think that's largely the trials that we've been doing that have involved health economics with Richard. I don't just deal with early prostate cancer or men who are not yet diagnosed. I also deal right at the other end, which is men who are dying from prostate cancer or who have metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer have very significant pain. And in that situation, we're using a very expensive treatment where we're using a nuclear warhead that we attach to this peptide and we inject it and deliver radiation directly to the cell. That's much more expensive. And then it's far more difficult to determine what is the value of a pain-free six months or 12 months? What is the value of a 67-year-old getting to see their daughter be married or being able to have quality of life for the last year of their life? That's a much trickier thing and that's something that we're also doing with Richard, looking in our trials like NZP's a randomised trial where we're looking at two different agents and we're looking at health economics with that. Have you had experience of having to withhold treatment from patients on the basis of cost? Yes, I do. And I have patients on my floor praying so that I can try and get them to afford treatment that I can't give them because I don't have it available. They don't fit onto a trial and the government does not fund it. It's a big driver in what I do. It pushes me a lot. It's not blinded because when you inject radiation it's pretty hard to be blind because in fact we image the radiation afterwards and if they were on a placebo we wouldn't see anything on the scan so (laughs) 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 pretty 
pretty hard to be blind. So no, I have a very good idea what they're on. So when you do randomised trials, because you have to prove benefit, there has to be someone on the bad arm or the arm that you don't believe in. They often do badly and they're really helping society in terms of determining whether or not we should change how we treat. So you have to have equipoise when you do a study and once again it's actually difficult for men on randomised trials. It's hard putting men on randomised trials. Some of those men don't do well. I have the unfortunate habit of sabotaging my own trials. Quite often if a patient's failing badly on a trial, then we try and take them off the trial and move their treatments um, sometimes to what we call a crossover, which is where you offer the new experimental agent to the patient off trial immediately after they exit, having been on the standard of care arm. That's a bit of a failing of mine because I do impact the results probably, but it makes you feel a lot better. The thing that really keeps you awake is you do these trials to change practice. You do these trials to change the world and the trials have to be good enough to do that. You have to try and stop these men from begging on your floor. Uh, it, look, it's very rewarding if you can do that. It's a good goal. Yeah, there were dark times, of course there were dark times. Fear of death is there, there's no question. There is a fear of death, of course there is. There are times when you think about the consequences, you think about your relationships, you think about, can I still go to rugby on Saturday? It was the neurologist and he said, I've got your results back and there's a clear margin and it's terrific and I think you're going to be okay. Two or three hours later, I had absolutely convinced myself that I'd imagined that phone call completely and that it didn't happen. So the mind works in strange ways. I'm Ray Allen. I am the Deputy Chair of the Consumer Advisory Panel within a clinical trials group known as ANZUP, which is Australia, New Zealand, Urogenital and Prostate Clinical Trials Group. It's a cooperative trials group where trials into genital urinal cancers are conducted but instigated by the clinicians, not by drug companies, and so it does bear that mark of independence. I call it my Friday afternoon. I had an increased PSA level and my local doctor did some other tests and packed me straight off to a urologist, did the biopsy in the urologist rooms, and he said, you've got prostate cancer and we can't treat it conservatively. And I was in my early recovery phase and my urologist had a bit of a sly grin on his face and he said, what are you doing in your retirement? He said, I think I've got something you'd like. From there, it's history. following day at ANZUP Scientific Advisory Committee, uh, their annual meeting, and that was it. From then on, I was suddenly a consumer advisor. I prefer to think of it as patient advocacy. 
not directly advising people, but creating the environment by working on the clinical trials, giving suggestions early in the piece about how a trial might be work, or indeed what is important to people in their ongoing life. I knew nothing about my prostate, where it was, what it was, what it did. And I think I'm pretty typical of a lot of men and a lot of the people I know now who sneak up to me having had their Friday afternoon and ask a question about the diagnosis they've just had. I came to a fairly comfortable truce with it all. One, I decided to learn a bit more about it. And when I looked, there was plenty of stuff. I did that big weighing up of one's life. And I decided that this was not really much more, to me at least, than a broken arm or a, a whacked ankle. I had so many good things in my life. My life was so big. Thinking about sex at, at that age of 62 was, it's been fun, but it doesn't go on forever. And I think in reality, I came to grips with the view that my life was just so big and so much happening and so many good things that I resisted the temptations to go and look at rehabilitation strategies, which are pretty awful. I know of one guy who's had two uh, erectile implants and he's worn one out. But I actually would describe an individual patient's health as their working capital and that to me gives the dimension of health economics to the patient at a personal level. And I think I can sort of say as a man of 72, the quality of life is a pretty important factor. And it comes into the weighting of what might be presented to me as a treatment decision. If you look at health economics, I see it as being generally viewed as a purchasing decision, a resourcing decision, and then very likely and unfortunately, a rationing decision. The answer is you can still do an awful lot and if it recurs later, well, something's going to get you one day. Life is going to throw some curveball at you at some point. Thank you for listening to Healthy Body, Healthy Mind a podcast made for the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. This podcast was made in collaboration with Impact Studios at UTS. To hear more great podcasts and to learn how Impact Studios can help you turn your research into engaging audio, simply Google Impact Studios UTS. I'm William Verity.